Welcome to the Lead On Podcast. This is Jeff Orge, the president of Gateway Seminary, talking with you once again about practical issues related to ministry leadership. Now, as you know, on the podcast from time to time, I invite a guest to share with us, and I've done that again today. Our guest today is Dr. Phil Connor, who's a professor here at Gateway Seminary, where he's served for the last 11 years. Now, before that, he was in the U.S. Army for 22 years, serving as a chaplain. It's fair to say that during that role, uh, Phil served in all kinds of contexts all around the world, from major hospitals to working directly with soldiers in the field and all kinds of other situations. Phil also has, believe it or not, two master's degrees and two doctoral degrees, so he's definitely, uh, with just the two of us sitting here, the smartest person in the room. But the reason I've asked him to be on today is because when he was in the Army, he taught other chaplains something called critical incident stress management, and he's brought that training to bear here at the seminary by helping us to develop material and teach it to students and make it available in other formats about pastoral ministry in the context of incidents of stress management like we're facing right now with the pandemic. And so today, I've asked uh, Phil, and I'll call him that since he's my friend, I've asked Phil to talk with us about what it means to be involved in pastoral ministry during a time like this. So Phil, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much, and good to be here. I've asked you specifically to talk about these kinds of issues I've already mentioned, and Uh, Two of the issues that emerge in the lives of many of the people we're ministering to these days are anxiety and grief. Now, pastors right now and other ministry leaders are drowning in scheduling changes and meeting changes and delivery modality changes for their sermons and Bible studies and all of that. But underneath all of that external schedule changing and all of that other stuff I just mentioned is a deep need to keep caring for people. And with social distancing going on, that makes it even more challenging. But nevertheless, anxiety and grief are still evident in the lives of people. Why don't you talk about those as sort of the presenting issues for people in difficult circumstance as we are now, and then we'll take it from there as we discuss it this, on the podcast. As we have our, every one of us has our own level of anxiety at all times. Now, some have experiencing more anxiety, some experiencing less, but we all have an underlying quoted anxiety quota. When we have something thrown onto us like this major event with the virus and, and all of the, uh, you know, honestly, life-threatening issues that go around that, that adds to our anxiety as well as adds to the anxiety of every person in our churches, those with whom we're doing ministry. And so anxiety comes up as a major issue. And then there's kind of a thing called a, a, a anxiety quotient. And when on top of your anxiety, your normal anxiety, I throw this other thing, then you're overloaded and you don't have the capacity to respond in a healthy way to this new load of anxiety. Uh, You know, Phil, let, let me just stop you there for a second. That's a good insight. Everyone is dealing with anxiety all the time and different levels of it are different layers of it in every one of our lives at all the time. And what you're saying is when something like this happens to us, the reason some people, well, something like the pandemic happens to us, the reason some people can handle it better for a while and others are immediately thrown into turmoil, and then later the first people go into turmoil while the other people back down, it's because of all this underlying anxiety that was already in place. This just heaps on that, and that's that's that helps to explain the differential of response that people right. make. And so you're exactly right. We respond to it differently, and we respond to it in different phases, different uh It'll hit one person immediately, the other person will be more delayed. And so 
uh, when and how does that occur to the person is, is significant and helps them to, well, helps them to understand where they are in coping with it. I think that's so insightful. I know that for myself, when the pandemic first started, uh, it was pretty easy to manage, frankly. The first few weeks of being at home and making the changes, I was so preoccupied with making all the work changes I had to make here and deal with all the things at the seminary. But I've noticed now that we've been into this for a few weeks that it's starting to affect me in ways I'm a little surprised to admit. For example, I find myself lethargic a little bit distracted, having a harder time focusing. And I realize that I've just been living with this anxiety for several weeks now, and it's finally settled down on me. Exactly. So, yeah, the weight affects you in different places due due to your current level of activity and how all that stuff is impacted. That's excellent. Well, you talked about pastors needing to know how to respond to people who are experiencing anxiety. Uh, you know, pastors have kind of a public ministry that they do through preaching and teaching, but they also do a lot of personal ministry where they reach out to people one-on-one. And even in this context of today, meet, uh, help people individually with anxiety. Could you talk about how pastors can address anxiety in both public roles and private roles or public ministry and private ministry, sort of how they would do that? Absolutely. Uh, first off, Pastors need to address anxiety issues from the pulpit. And there are studies that show that people in our congregations are interested in our pastors speaking specifically about mental health care issues from the pulpit before the pandemic. So now that we've got the pandemic going on, how does that manifest? How does it appear in my public pulpit ministry? And so one of the ways is I, I, you can preach a sermon on anxiety. There's plenty of biblical references to people who got anxious and how God engaged them. So Peter's pretty bold, got lots of faith, gets out of the boat, sees the wind and the storms and the waves, and all of a sudden he's an anxious guy sinking. Right. And he can see Jesus. Right. And so he calls out in anxiousness, and the Lord uh, rescues him and rebukes the wind and the waves, and and it all resolves. But important for me there is, and I'll hopefully get back to this later in the discussion, uh, Peter had a normal reaction to this abnormal response, and that was anxiousness. I think that's a great point. I don't mean to cut you off, but I want to stop you there. I think that's a great point. You're... Your first thing is when you said preach on anxiety or other mental health issues, pastors shouldn't shy away from preaching about these things. These are the realities of where people live. And then second, secondly, what you just said, and that is Peter had a normal reaction to what he saw going on around him that overwhelmed him. Exactly. And I think that's so important that preaching about something often normalizes it for people and they hear it declared to them from Scripture and explained to them from a biblical perspective, and suddenly they're willing to talk about what they're really feeling or going through when perhaps they've been only hiding it up until then. And that gets into both the discussion about anxiety and depression. Notice that Peter did not repent of anxiety. Oh, Lord, forgive me. I was so anxious, and I disappointed you, and I failed you, and I didn't fulfill your perfect will for my life. Peter never repented. Right. That was a normal reaction of a normal person to an unusual, abnormal circumstance. Mm -hmm. And so God, Jesus, rescues him and and embraces him. And therefore, I don't think I need to repent from anxiety, from normal anxiety and normal depression. 
uh, a normal grief. I, don't I think need to, that's. I don't repent from that. I think that's a great insight because some we we tend to put things in terms of sin or not sin, black or white. And in the in Scripture, overwhelmingly, anxious people came to God for comfort, not for forgiveness. They came for solace, you know, not for salvation. I, I think that's such a vital insight that you're giving us. And pastors, when you're preaching about anxiety, you're not calling people to uh, to a sense of condemnation or even conviction of their quote sin of that. No, you're calling them to understand this is a normal response to life situation that is overwhelming, and the places in Scripture that continually indicate that we can run to God, find refuge in Him, find shelter in Him, find a safe place in His tent. Those kind of phrases help us to understand this is that we're normalizing and giving people the opportunity to experience God's comfort, not asking them to repent of something that really isn't a sinful thing. Right. Yep. So that we, I experience that, but I, I need to not be afraid to reveal that. And so number one is public ministry. And I'm a biblical guy, preacher. I like the yes, biblical are. text. Yes, you are. Uh, so I'm not saying go to Psychology Today and preach a article at a Psych Today, which is a wonderful publication. And we, you know, <laughs> I'm not saying go get a, a, a article about anxiety and tag three scriptures to that. Right. But look at the biblical presence of anxiety. Some guys in the Bible did it good. Uh, you know, Abraham, I think uh, there's a couple of moments when he needed a little pastoral care. I'm afraid of uh, the of Pharaoh and, gee, honey, they'll tell you, they'll, they'll really think you're pretty hot, so uh, why don't we lie about it? Abraham responded his, to his anxiety inappropriately. Right. And so, there, you know, maybe there's repentance there, but recognize, A, that I'm anxious. Wouldn't it have been better for him to go to somebody for pastoral care and say, gee, I'm feeling unsettled about this. Uh, what should I do? Maybe lie to Pharaoh? And I think the, a good pastoral counselor would say, probably not today, Abraham. Let's let's look at another method. <laughs> That's right. So uh, so the Bible's full of, of episodes around that. The, one of my points in life is the Bible is not a text on mental health care. It's a text on salvation. As salvation impacts mental health, the Bible speaks. That's excellent. But it's not a diagnostic. There's a thing called the Diagnostic and Statistics Manual, Version 5, uh, DSM-5. Uh, that is where psychiatry folks, psychiatrists, have the criteria for diagnosing middle, mental disorders. Right. And the Bible doesn't compete with that. doesn't claim to compete with that. Right. But it does include the human experience. Right. And as anxiety is part of that human experience, it's in the text. But like I said before, I, I don't want to go in proof text and, you know, prove or preach a sermon out of psych today with a couple of Bible verses ta tagged onto it. Well, you shouldn't even have to do that. If you read Scripture, you can find throughout the Psalms, throughout other aspects of Scripture, these examples you've already given too here about how to have a public ministry about addressing anxiety. What about the personal ministry side? So, How do pastors work toward that as well? Well, I'll tag off just an okay. extension on the public ministry sure. is preach, mm -hmm. then refer, your yes. announcements, Make sure that, that your mental health care is publicized in all the social media of the church from your bulletin paper print to the slides before, uh, if you got slideshow before this worship service, where you mention if you're having these experiences, don't do it alone. There's people here to help you. And then uh, and across your, multi, your uh, social media platforms, uh, address the opportunity, A, the experience, you might be feeling like this, or someone you know or love might be exhibiting this, and here's a place to go for help. 
That's excellent. And, and so, so the public ministry is uh, ensure assure folks that they have the opportunities to uh, to deal with that. I like that. I'll summarize it again because I thought you added those points were which were excellent. Not only preach but publicize through your church's information material, et cetera. I was just thinking about how my church does that almost every Sunday. Right. And then third, uh, social media and other publications the church has to make these resources continually available in the public venue. Those are excellent uh, suggestions. Now, moving on to that personal ministry okay. side, how can pastors and other ministry leaders uh, be intentional about addressing anxiety on a more personal basis? So first off, when somebody comes into my office, uh, and here at the seminary, they don't come in as much as they used to. Uh, when someone comes to my office, the first thing I want to do is explore why they're there. And the truth I found is they don't always tell me the truth. Yes. Pastor, I need to come to you. I just need to stop by and have a chat. Or I want to talk about A, and the truth is they want to talk about Z. And I have to stay with them long enough for them to get around to what we're really thinking about. So I like to think about that as exploring the issue for why they're there. Then number two is once I become uh, concerned that there is some mental health care issue going on like anxiety or some protracted grief experience, once I, I become aware of that, I want to address it directly. So I'm, no one has ever became anxious because someone asked them if they thought they were anxious. Right. And so don't be afraid of, of prescribing the symptom by asking about that issue. So number one, I want to, to find out why they're there. Number two is I want to uh, address that specifically with them. So as you explore and discover why they're really there, the E, let's explore why the person is seeking assistance. Because like I said, they don't always tell the truth. Then number two, I'm going to assess, does this person have what I perceive to be, or I'm concerned about a mental health care issue? And uh, so one of the things I need to do with about that is become more of a familiar with signs and symptoms of mental health care issues. So right. I'm, I'm an informed provider. And so once I make an assessment about that, do they have, are they more anxious than normal? Is this anxiety that they're having uh, impacting other areas of their life? Are they unable to manage that? So uh, I kind of go through a, I go through a brief assessment for that. Then I want to suggest to them the possibility of a mental health care need. In other words, I'm not a diagnostician. I'm not a licensed mental health care provider. And it's honestly unethical for me to prescribe to diagnose someone. So I can't say, oh, Mrs. Jones, you're depressed. Mrs. Jones, you have general anxiety disorder. I, I'm not legally competent to do that. Right. But I can help them warm up to the idea. It sound, I want to suggest to them the possibility of a mental health care issue. Now, Phil, let's talk about this just for a moment, because I think you're doing something here that is very uh, significant, and we find it here as well at the seminary. From time to time, we'll have students come in who have different issues like we're describing today. Uh, anxiety is the presenting problem, but as we talk with them, we start to discover more about what's going on. And we do the, uh, pr the process you're uh, describing, explore, assess, and then suggest. But what we suggest is that they perhaps need to get some specific mental, mental health care, either from a uh, trained counselor or from a psychiatrist or from a psychologist. And by doing that, we're saying that we don't have those skills as well. Now, I've been a ministry leader, as you have, for 40 years. 
I know some things when I see them just from experience, but I'm not really qualified to professionally pronounce those conclusions. But what I've found is that when I, as the president of a seminary, say to a student, I think you would be well served to visit this counselor. If they've had any stigma associated in their mind with going to a counselor or any reluctance to see perhaps a psychiatrist or a physician to try to get at the root of what's, what's troubling them, my encouragement for them to do it is, in essence, giving them permission and saying, I validate you, I, I, I'm with you, I want you to do this because I think it would be best for you. And I found the same thing when I was a pastor. People would come to me uh, knowing they needed some kind of help, but almost afraid to admit they did because they thought it was some sort of spiritual uh, 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 surrender or, or some spiritual failure if they had to get this kind of mental health care. But that's just not the case. So I want to affirm you for that. I think it is important that we suggest and even adv- and even refer or help people to find the kind of help they need. But pastor, don't feel the burden. You're not you're not equipped to be a mental health diagnostician. Now you may have some thoughts about the situation as it presents itself from your experience and training, and that's certainly legitimate. But let those thoughts motivate you to refer and help more than feel like the whole burden rests on you to be the person who's going to solve the dilemma of the one sitting in front of you. Now, as Phil's answering this question, he's working through this acrostic that he's created that, or that he uses called easier, R-R-R. I love the end of it. It's the word easier with a couple of extra R's. He's already talked to us about this person sitting in front of you. You're going to explore their situation, assess their situation, suggest options for following through and moving forward from their situation. And then, Phil, you go on with some other key words, identify, encourage, remind. Talk to us about those. So first, or back to, we suggest, and suggest needs to be of a tentative nature. I'm not, I've got a lot of authority as a pastor. And if I tell somebody, you've got this mental disorder, they're going to believe me. And so I want to be tentative and suggest. And what I hear you explaining sounds to me kind of like this. And there's some ways that people that experience what you're experiencing often, frequently, get help and benefit. And and let's talk about some of those things. So in the easier uh, model here, after that is we want to identify resources to promote wellness. Well, what are you doing right now? to manage your anxiety. Oh, pastor, I'm staying up all night. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, I can't sleep. I, I, I'm uh, restless and, and uh, I just keep dwelling on these things. And so, well, let's look at some of the things that you can do to promote your well-being. Some of those things are pretty simple. How much coffee you're drinking? How late at night are you drinking your coffee? Right. Are you, uh, what are you doing uh, entertainment-wise? I used to be, work on an inpatient psychiatric ward for veterans, primarily many of them PTSD, but many of them had multiple diagnoses. I go in the PTSD ward one day, and you're watching Rambo. Right. So I went right over to the nurse, and I said, isn't this the problem? (laughs) And she said, uh, chaplain, uh, patients' rights, and they're adults, and they can watch anything they want to in the the hospital library. So I said, well, let's get that stuff out of the hospital library, (laughs) you know. Uh, So so what are you doing? Are you doing things to enhance your anxiety or reduce your anxiety? Exactly. And so diet, uh, exercise, I find that the days that I have a robust exercise, I sleep better. And so, and in the, you know, quarantine time, our schedules are upset, our activity levels are, for many of us, reduced. So what are you doing? So identify uh, healthy coping skills. What can you do to help yourself? And then also look and say, what are, you know, 
What are the things that I need to quit doing? Right. What are the things that, how much news are you watching? Uh, I had a colonel that was uh, the guy in charge of the last group of airborne paratroopers that went into Grenada. Mm -hmm. And uh, he said after that experience, he never watched the news again. He said, when the army wants me to know something, they'll tell me. I understand what he's saying. I have significantly reduced the amount of news that I watch over the past two years. Now, as I've written before in the blog and said here on the podcast, that doesn't mean I don't stay informed. I have some news sources that I check in with every day to make sure I know the headlines and the key things that are happening. But I don't think it's healthy for a person who's suffering from severe anxiety to be spending, you know, 8, 10, 12 hours a day mainlining the same story over and over and over about how bad certain things are and how threatening they are in their life or culture or in our culture. So I, I get that with you. So we're going to explore, assess, suggest, identify, and then? And we want to enlist the person in cooperating with the support program. Right. So here's what I'd like you to do. Are you willing to commit to this therapeutic process. And if they say no, then I'm kind of trapped on what more I can do for you. Right. And so we want to, and, and you, you preface that by saying, well, you came over here today because you really needed help and you were hoping I could give you help. And the truth is I'm here to be your pastor, but I need help in helping you. Are you willing to do that with me? So I, en I enlist their uh, commitment to the therapeutic process. Then I remind them just because you've come for help, doesn't mean it's all going to be better. It, it, resolving your issues will take time. And a week from now, you might be just as anxious as you are right now, or maybe worse. But that's the way, that's the process that human beings adapt to anxiety. That also is part of the normal person having a normal response to an abnormal circumstance. So I want to remind them about that. Then this is all about referral. So I want to make an appropriate referral. And that can go from you, the, the person that's come to see me. Here's a list of some people in our neighborhood and our community that can help you. Christian psychologists, maybe mental health care providers. Uh, are you willing to make contact and, and make an appointment with this? I've had people said, no, chaplain, I won't do that. No, pastor, I won't do that. So then I say, well, can I call them and make the, the appointment for you? Oh, sure, chaplain, you can do that. And I'm thinking, well, why don't you? And, but you'll sit right here with me so you'll know that I am not revealing anything confidential in that conversation. So that phone call from me to the mental health provider looks like, hey, this is Phil Connor, Dr. Connor, Pastor Connor, Chaplain Connor, whichever Connor I am that day. Uh, and I've been talking to Steve Jones, and he's right here with me now. And I really think it would be good for him to make an appointment. But he's a little uh, unsettled and, and, and wanted to ask me to help him. Can you help me make an appointment for for this individual. I love the role modeling. I love it, Phil, because it just helps pastors to understand how practical and simple it is to be uh, to have a network of people like that around them that they can access and to make that 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 particular phone call. Uh, you know, other counselors they understand the professional responsibility that ministers have to the people in their offices, but we also understand the responsibility they have, and we can work together with each other without violating any confidentiality or revealing anything that uh, is inappropriate revealed. You had the client sitting right there in front of you or the person who came to you for counsel sitting right there in front of you. They were a part of that conversation, and that's a good way to do referral. Well, finish it up, the last part of the R, and that is you're going to resume something. Resume, and yeah. this is the most important for the pastor. I never relinquish all R's. I never relinquish pastoral care when I refer you for mental health. 
Even if you go to a local Christian counseling center, I'm still your pastor. I'm going to love you and nurture you and attend to you. I just won't be your mental health therapist. But we never relinquish pastoral responsibility when we refer. We resume pastoral care in a different way with this person. That's excellent because we're not passing people off or pushing people off. We're getting people the assistance they need and then continuing to walk alongside them and encourage them in the process of getting toward the healing that, they, that, they, that they're trying to achieve. You know, it's funny to me. We don't have any problem doing this with physical problems. If a person comes in and says, I have a heart condition, I'm diabetic, um, I have uh, high blood pressure, and this is all contributing to my anxiety, we would say, you need to see a physician and I will walk with you through this process. We can do the same thing by saying, look, I think what you're dealing with is something related to how you're approaching life, and I'll help provide the spiritual resources for you to get the help you need, but I think you might also do well to have some professional counsel along the way and maybe even some medical evaluation along the way. I'll walk with you through that as well. So pastors and other ministry leaders, we don't ever relinquish we resume our pastoral care responsibility. We're not getting rid of people, passing people off, getting them out of our office, none of those kinds of things. We're helping them get the referral they need to get the help they need, and we're staying in partnership with that process. Now, let's say, though, Phil, that, um, that a person really is really struggling, and they present uh, to us with something that looks perhaps more like depression. Let's talk about that for a moment. What what makes you what what makes you uh, what helps you understand that anxiety is moving a person into a depression? What what would you notice differently about that situation, or why would that concern you, or how would you respond in that to that person who's in your office or who's in your church, and you feel like, you know, they're 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 a little farther than just a little anxious or even suffering from anxiety there. They're really into a more of a depressed state. With the situation right now, if somebody presents in my office and the difference kind of, well, the difference between anxiety and depression is pretty profound. Anxiety is a heightened awareness. Depression is a lowering of energy, of ability, of uh, life engagement. Right. So one is kind of, anxiety is more about becoming hypervigilant. And depression is more about re retreating for life. It's the kind of going into the, mm -hmm. the fetal position. Uh, that's also part of the grief discussion. But the important thing for us to remember about depression, once again, this goes back to my theory that all of our human emotions are divinely created. Now, if we'd stayed in the garden, I don't think we would have ever experienced depression. Right. But God made us with the capacity to experience depression in the garden. Mm-hmm. When sin fell, circumstances changed, and our created ability for depression, the circumstance for depression would have never arisen in the garden. But brother, they're right outside the garden waiting for you. And so uh, depression is a reduction of ability to face life. Mm. It, it's, it's a wearing out of my energies. Mm -hmm. So maybe a, a heightened state of anxiety will produce this expenditure right, of energy. Right. So in, in this is my illustration for that. In the Army, I was lucky enough to be a 18th Airborne Corps soldier on several occasions. And uh, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, the 101st Air Assault Division, twice a year we had to accomplish an air assault road march. 
aerosol road march looks like this. 12 miles, a rucksack that weighed at least 36 pounds, four additional quarts of water, your assigned weapon, chaplains don't have a weapon, so I got, woohoo, I didn't have to carry a weapon. Uh, Kevlar, full body, everything, and you had to finish the road march in three hours or less. Mm. And you had to do that twice a year. And so, and I always passed my air assault road march. Uh, sometimes I got blisters. Sometimes I got sore. Sometimes something hurt. But you know what? I always slept good those nights. Right. Now, when I woke up, my feet hurt. But I always slept good because I had expended my energy and then my body was now depressed and needed to recover. I recover through that or from that through sleep. When I have a great deal of anxiety, anxiousness, anger, apprehension, I consume my emotional energy. Mm. And after a while, I don't have emotional energy anymore. And so what happens from that is I become emotionally depressed, compromised. And then I go to my room, I go to my bed, I get in the fetal position, I don't play ball with the friends, I, I don't go out and do the things that I normally do. For students, I, I don't get the homework done that I knew I had to do, I don't pick up the book to read it, because I don't have the energy for that. And once again, this is a divinely oriented or divinely originated situation that God made us this way. Because when I've had a profound insult to my life, like this virus that's, that's terrifying so many of us, or a lost loved one, or those kind of things. I need to be able to reorder my life without the extraneous uh, uh, confusion, the static from the world around me. And so what I need is the time to reorient, to rest and recover. Now, what happens is people who become depressed have a primary fear or concern. They think I'm going to be like today. I, I cannot stand being experiencing this today. And I am going to experience this for every day after this. And they're trapped. And so our job is to say what you're going through is depression. Now we have to make a decision. Is it routine depression or clinical depression? That's right. a whole nother matter. What you're going through is depression. And most people find that through this process of retreat and recovery, they reorganize their lives and they're able to return to regular. This isn't a life, depression is not a life sentence. Right. It, it's, it's periodic. It has a, uh, you know, it has a shelf life, but it's part of the healthy recovery. And so for me, there's an important point of, of how we talk about human emotions. Too often I talk about good and bad feelings. I think it's much better for us to describe healthy or helpful feelings and hurtful feelings. If I label it bad, then I shouldn't have it. Right. Oh, it's bad to be depressed, so I can't tell anybody I'm depressed because I want to be a good Christian, or, or maybe I'm the pastor. Well, that sort of leads me to the last question, and that is, you know, we've talked today about uh, anxiety and how that is an outworking of emotion that we're experiencing from the pandemic. And then we've talked a bit about how that can result in depression. And we're not talking about clinical depression where people need to be under medical care. We're talking about depression that can be managed with pastoral care, which is what we're doing here today. But then you made that one last statement, and that is it can even affect pastors and their families. So let's just say a word 
If you're a pastor or a ministry leader out there, these things apply to you. You're not Superman or Superwoman. You're not superhuman. You're just like the rest of us. So, Phil, to kind of close it out, what would you say to these ministry leaders about paying attention to their own mental health needs while they're grappling with their own responses to the coronavirus, as well as all the ministry demands that are placed on them? First thing you do is make an assessment of your life. So maybe get out a piece of paper with the line down the middle, and here are the things that are working in my life and doing good that don't necessarily need my attention. And here's some things where I'm experiencing frustration, anxiety, unsettledness. What's going to happen? What's the budget going to be like? How's, how's, what are we going to be doing a year from now? Uh, my wife did that ministry to me. Uh, we were at a little bitty church on the Chena River in Fairbanks, Alaska, and my mom was coming up to visit. And I had a chart that showed the church uh, bank account and the church income and the church outgo, and those things intersected in a downward decline before my mom's vacation. And I went to my wife and said, do I need to call mom and tell her don't buy your ticket? And my wife, D said, you need to trust the Lord. And she was right. And the finances never went below the income. And my mom came up to Alaska for our visit. And we went to Mount McKinley. And we did all the things you're supposed to do when your mom comes to Alaska to visit you. But it was what I had to do was have a realistic, I was anxious. Mm-hmm. And so, so and now let's list those things that I'm anxious about and then ask how realistic are they? Because typically we're afraid of the worst outcome, not the likely outcome. So what are things in your life are unsettled? What are things in your life are unsettled that you can give to somebody else that they can manage for you? So I'm, I'm cleared from that. As a pastor, what things of your life that gave you rewarding ministry are gone now? So a family member, a church family member dies and how we can't do the funeral. Like I can't do pastoral visitation. I don't get that opportunity for that rewarding experience. And so the in the increases in my mental health well-being from my ministry, the rewarding experiences right, that right. I should have, that I need to have, that are part of why I'm here, are now gone. And so what are those things that, uh, the, the positive things that we've lost, so I'm not getting that reward system fed, and then what are the painful things that have occurred, so I'm getting negative experiences. Uh, and so let's give it a look for that, and then how can I manage it? And maybe it means I need to take a couple of weeks off from preaching and have somebody else do some of the preaching for me. But be upfront and honest about it. You know, this experience is creating uh, inner turmoil for me. And as your pastor, I need time to address those things in a healthy way so I'll be here for you. Uh, and, and pastors, kids have, the, the truth about kids is they have every emotional experience that we have. They just don't have the resources to address them that we do. And so Mm. pay attention to your kids. Thanks, Phil, for those good words about pastors and their families here at the end. So today on the podcast, we've been talking about how to respond to the mental health challenges of the pandemic, particularly in pastoral ministry and in ministry in local churches. There's a tremendous amount of anxiety that's evident among our members and in our communities. We have the resources to work with those persons, and Phil has outlined an acrostic, easier, with some extra R's on the end to help us understand how to do that. 
We're not exempt as ministry leaders from these challenges. So we conclude by saying, take care of yourself. Use the skills that you have to uh, apply to yourself some of these same solutions. And don't be afraid to turn to a fellow pastor, a mental health provider, or someone you trust to get help you may need as you go through this difficult time with your family and with the church responsibilities that are still on you. Hey, it's a tough time, but that's all right. God wants to use us during these days to make a real difference for Him. And I know you'll do it as you lead on.